This is FinTech Takes, the podcast keeping you in the loop on all the latest FinTech trends, news, and ideas. I'm Alex Johnson, creator of the FinTech Takes newsletter, your host, and self-confessed FinTech nerd. Let's go. Hello, and welcome back to the FinTech Takes podcast. I have a very special episode for you today. This is an episode I've been wanting to do for a while. It's all about business models. I've been looking for an excuse to sort of dive in deeper to business models. Part of the reason for that is that profitability is now somewhat in vogue again in FinTech. And so it feels like kind of a good time to dig into some of the different business models that have been reliably generating profit for a while in financial services and see if there are different corners of the ecosystem that we can learn from or that we can at least spend some kind of digging into. So the plan is to focus on business models. And you know, when I thought about this topic, there were two names that came right to mind for people I'd like to have as guests. Two people who, if I was wandering around the fintech wilderness, and then suddenly I stopped and I grabbed their arms and I said in my best Steve Irwin voice, oh, look at that. That's just a gorgeous business model. Sorry, that was a horrible Australian accent. They wouldn't completely look at me like I've lost my mind. So our first guest is a returning champion, Jared Franklin, longtime fintech operator and most recently an investor at Costa Noa Ventures. Jared, welcome back to the podcast. Glad to be here. Glad to actually have a focus on business models instead of just products. Yes, yes. Well, I think in maybe something that you wrote in your blog one time, you were sort of waxing poetic about different business models. And I think I wrote in recommending that piece in my newsletter that everyone out there should try to find someone who talks about them the way that Jared talks about a good <laughs> fintech business model. So you were top of my list for someone I wanted to have on the podcast. And we are also joined by someone making their Fintech Takes podcast debut, Jeff Genges Kazanins, a longtime operator in the European fintech scene and how you might know him better as the author of one of my new favorite fintech newsletters, Popular Fintech, which analyzes public fintech companies and other companies in financial services. Jeb is also a outstanding follow on Twitter where he shares a ton of really great detailed information on earnings and other things going on with public fintech companies. So Jeb, welcome to the show. Uh, hi, and thanks for inviting me. Glad to be here. Yes. No, I, again, like when I was thinking who would get like, oh, what a gorgeous business model, I, I definitely thought of you as well. So Here's the plan for today's show. We're going to have a ton of fun. Each of us has picked one company and one business model in financial services that we are going to each spend a little bit of time talking about, uh, giving a little bit of background on, explaining the basics of how the business model works, and then having a conversation as a group around what's interesting about it, what it might sort of mean in a larger sense for the financial services industry, particularly, again, as we're heading into maybe more of a time when profitability and strong unit economics matter. Just as a heads up for folks, these are not always going to be like the sexiest names in fintech. And there's actually a reason for that. It tends to be, in my experience, that really great business models tend to sometimes be attached to quote-unquote boring fintech names or financial services names. So we will uh, do our best to help you see that boring, profitable business models are, in fact, super sexy. So with that, Jared, I will give you the honor of going first. What business model do you have for us? Yeah, sure. So decide on a company worth highlighting, I had to first decide on a sector because each sector within fintech or financial services tends to have an established business model associated with them, right? So yep. for me today, I decided to focus on the one that is arguably not fintech or financial services, but what good is all that financial services infrastructure if not 
vertical software, embedded fintech, embedded payments, whatever your favorite name is. So the Toast, the MindBody, the Shopify's, or specifically to highlight today, Service Titan. Since oh. I think we're all going to start hearing a lot more about Service Titan going forward. So I'll give a brief overview of the company since not everyone might actually know who they are. I'll highlight the business model and then the reasons why it's intriguing, and then we'll discuss. Awesome. So Service Titan, which I am not an expert in by any means as far as late-stage company analysts analysis goes or about Service Titan. This was all like 20 minutes of research. That should apply for both me and Jared, by the way. <laughs> Jeff probably is a little bit more of a uh, practiced expert. He's yeah, got, but He's got charts. <laughs> yeah, he does this like way more research than uh, Jared and I. But yeah, that's a good disclosure, Jared. Go ahead. <laughs> yeah. So uh, I think they officially began in 2012 focusing on software for home services businesses, plumbers, HVAC, and from what I understand, mostly residential to begin with. Fast forward a few years, 2017, they reached almost 100 million ARR and they began to monetize payments at that point. So they waited that long, whereas some other businesses got to start with payments and add software all around it. And they did that with the launch of their own payment processing solution so that techs could collect credit cards and checks in the field or over the phone. Fast forward 2020, started to offer commercial offerings and expand their product suite. And then 2022, they added payroll services, among other capabilities, and then expanded to pest and long care. So a really dominant, iconic company in that vertical. And they're gearing up for what's likely to be an IPO over the next couple quarters, more so likely than, than the next couple of years. They raised 11 billion to date for scale. And I know they crossed 500 million in revenue, could be above 600 at this point, although I have no idea what their recent losses look like. So a business model fits the business model that a lot of those types of companies in this category have. One, subscription fees. I believe they start around $400 a month based on the number of users and the size of the customer and the services they need across things like scheduling and invoicing and CRM. And number two, financial services. So they started with that payment processing, so transaction fees for each payment process, and then expanded to embedded lending. So contractors could offer financing to homeowners at the point of point of need, I guess yeah, you would yeah, say. Yeah, point, yeah. Point, point of, <laughs> uh, point of and, like sadness and desperation in my experience. <laughs> point of big expense replacement <laughs> thing needed. Point of uh, your wife yelling at you. Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> point of I'm in Florida and my AC doesn't work and I'm hot as shit. Right, right. And then eventually payroll for their workforces. Thirdly, add-on services, call tracking and marketing automation. Fourth, professional services. So helping with implementation, ongoing support, training. And then lastly, partnerships. I believe they have rev share agreements and referral fees with other company offerings. So five levers, you could say, although I'm sure most of the revenue comes from two of them. So what's intriguing? What's intriguing to me is that you can actually get rewarded in this category with software valuation multiples, uh -huh. if that's a big chunk of your revenue. So, and that revenue has a much more attractive margin profile than just payments. So whereas in other sectors in fintech and financial services, you likely don't really fetch those rich multiples, aside from those periods where investors are investing off of narratives or vibes or vanity metrics, like we've seen a lot, right? Yep, Everyone yep. goes, what's your revenue? Let's multiply that by 10 and that should be your valuation. You know, that eventually doesn't keep going on once you hit public markets or other, you know, micro and macro economic environments. So for instance, a neobank could get richly valued while growing really fast, but eventually it's just going to be valued like a bank, which trades off a of price to book instead of you know, a revenue multiple or wealth tech, which will ultimately be based on something like AUM per active user, 
not just what is your current annualized revenue times whatever. So if a lot of the bulk of the revenue is subscription-based, you're going to get value like a software business, which is going to have much richer multiple. That's attractive and unique within financial services. Secondly, as a product person at heart, is the flywheel and the expansion opportunities. They can always continue with more and more product expansion, can always continue with more customer expansion, go up market and down market, can always continue with more trade expansion, so beyond HVAC and PEST. And lastly, it can always expand geographically. I think right now they just focus on US and Canada. And then lastly, while scaling up and once at scale, these businesses have like really unique built-in distribution for new product offerings that they roll out. They have the stickiness, they have the high switching costs. Like they're very resilient, durable businesses. So I'd speculate the service line specifically has a lot of room for growth, even though they're already 10 years old. When they go public, I think they'll be worth a lot more than Toast and trade at a higher multiple for a long period of time because I believe the bulk of their revenue is subscription-based over payments-based because payments have those high cogs. The service businesses, I believe, have higher margins than restaurants. So their platform can extract more revenue per user and they're likely growing at a faster clip. So anyway, this isn't to say buy this when they go public by any means. I have no idea what it'll be value at or anything like that. But it's an exciting, interesting business in an area of the world that most people probably don't even really think about. And it represents a business category, a business model that is really interesting. Well, that was great for 20 minutes, Jared. So well done <laughs> on your research. I'd hate to see what you could do with a couple of days of research. Let me react real quick, and then I would want to hand it over to Jeff because he, uh, I'm sure, has studied this company extensively and has like massive decks filled with slides giving all the numbers on it. But I mean, I think you're exactly right about the distribution of revenue, and that's one of the things that I've always paid attention to in companies in this space. I'm reading a book actually right now about the rise and fall of General Electric. And one of the things that's really interesting about the history of GE is in the 1980s, they just went crazy and basically stopped like manufacturing things and started just being a financial services holding company. And obviously that came to a bad end around the time of the great financial crisis. But what was interesting kind of digging into the history of that is financial services revenue is really addictive. I think to non-financial services companies, right? Because like if you're the CFO or CEO at this company that like makes widgets of some kind or creates software for services businesses or has some like real business, when like payments revenue comes in, you're like, wow, this is amazing. Like we're not manufacturing anything, like we don't have to do anything, we just get paid. Like this is incredible. And I think the the danger with that is that you very quickly become sort of addicted to that revenue and sort of over-optimize on trying to drive more of that revenue at the expense of investing in your core business, right? So when you're talking about the bulk of the business being subscription revenue and that being kind of the primary product, the way I think about that is like, that's the core component of your flywheel that drives everything. And if you take your focus off of that, all the other benefits that you get off that flywheel also start to slow down or disappear. And so, yeah, the fact that they, did you say 2012 to 2017 was the wait before they added any payments? Like that to me demonstrates a certain discipline in we're going to earn the right into this market before we try to add on any of these other things. I think that's really cool. To your point about being able to expand into other products, I totally agree. I think there's a huge runway for them. If they ever really got desperate, I suppose they could do the, Carta playbook of maybe like 
selling leads to PE firms for rolling up services businesses and just giving them like a way to monetize that way. I don't think they would ever do that. But like, sky's the limit. This is a very like cool market that they clearly have broken into. So no, I think it's fantastic. Jeff, what are your thoughts on it? Yeah, I mean, I'm really excited about this, you know, interception of software and financial services. I mean, every time I mention that Shopify is a fintech, there are always like a few people who would say that now it's it's a software company. And, right. And I always have to pull out the chart, you know, showing <laughs> the, the composition of the revenue. Yeah. <laughs> but when we were preparing, right, I even surprised Jared on, on how much <laughs> Shopify is making from payments. And yeah. I think there's the software part, right? But there's also more to the kind of financial services part, right? So if, if we talk about Shopify, right, just, just quickly pulled up uh, the charts. So they make over 70% from what they call merchant services, which is primarily payment, Yeah. right? So e- either payments that they process through Stripe or, or, or kind of the fees that they uh, charge to other acquirers. But what's growing inside of, of those 70% is, is like Shopify Capital, Right or Shopify markets, which is essentially currency conversion, right? Uh, which they do with globally. So, kind of on the software side, we can argue that you know they can add other components and elements and cover other processes. But I think there is also a, kind of once you win payments, you you start winning other parts of the financial life of of the client, right? So like merchants process payments. Okay, you know you can do merchant financing. Or you can help them with the currency exchange, which is always profitable. You know, you really have to try hard not to make money from currency exchange. I mean, that's clearly interesting, you know, and I'm closely following what they kind of, where they go beyond payments. But that's kind of what occupies my brain. Yeah, no, I think that's totally fair. I mean, it's a good point that payments by itself is kind of low margin, has high costs, can tend to be a race to the bottom, although embedded or you know having a distribution advantage certainly helps with that. But yeah, I mean, it is a beachhead for other financial services products, a lot of which can be based on the data that you collect when you're processing payments. Like That makes a ton of sense. And we've definitely seen, to your point about Shopify, and this applies to Square and a whole bunch of other providers as well, lending tends to follow payments in particular. And you definitely have a really built-in sort of distribution and underwriting advantage if you're doing a lot of payments first. And Jared, I know I'm speaking directly to you with this because your your background is certainly in that sort of melding spot between lending and payments as well. Yeah, totally. And I, I think payroll, everyone's going to start doing more and more. Yeah. And it's interesting that ServiceTime did it. There's a company called CheckHQ, which is mid-stage company, I think Series B, they, they raise a sizable amount, but making it easy for these types of platforms to embed payroll processing. And I think that's a really natural extension and become much more normalized. I, I love that you brought up G. It reminded me of one of my favorite books, one of the first books I read like as an adult called Built to Last. And it is if people are interested in this topic that we're talking about today, then they'll really enjoy that book. But basically, it, it did a side-by-side study of a bunch of companies, so like GE versus Westinghouse. Oh. Why did GE become a hundred-year-old company and Westinghouse not? Or 3M versus Norton? You know, and so really great book if people are nerdy about this type of stuff. Well, if you've made it this far in the podcast, you clearly are nerdy about this <laughs> stuff. So we will definitely drop that book recommendation in the show notes. I love when that stuff comes up. Jev, why don't you give us our second company to talk about and second business model? <laughs> sure. Uh, there is a bit of an irony that you know I write about. Fintech companies, but uh, today I'm going to talk about American Express. Aha! And, 
<laughs> the first fintech I company, s- some could say. No, I'm just kidding. I mean, the, the original fintech is Capital One, right? But That's true. But American Express is like, what about us? We had stagecoaches and all this stuff. So yeah, go go for it. <laughs> exactly. So, I mean, if you think of kind of how Amex is known, right? It's credit card company, uh, one of the largest, depends on how you look at it, whether number of cards or loan balances or payment spans. But essentially, they are in top four and competing with, uh, with JP Morgan, Citi and Capital One. But just to throw in a, a few numbers, right? So 140 million cards, I mean, 80 million proprietary cards, extremely profitable business that doing like 30% ROE, which is, you know, unheard of in, in banking, market cap of 150 million, quite a sizable player. But, but what excites me is they actually have a very unique model that helped them build the moat, as they say. So the model of Famax is that they are an issuer, a network, and an acquirer that is just blessed with processing only on us transaction. And I'll try to unpack that. <laughs> so you kind of go back to the competitors, right? So JP Morgan City, I mean, they earn money on card fees, so monthly annual fee from the card. They earn some money on the interchange, but you know they have to provide all the rewards and, and, and so on. But what happens with Amex, Amex is not shy of charging High fees. I mean, I, I'm looking at the chart and, you know, the average paper card has gone up for every quarter in the last five years, probably more. <laughs> yeah. 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 Right? I just haven't looked past 2018. So they charge the fees, but because they are an acquirer, yeah. right, they essentially get the merchant discount in full. And because they are a network, they don't have to pay Visa or MasterCard to process that transaction, right? So essentially, they they make like slightly over two percent in, in discount revenue on on all the spend, yeah. Right, and, and that's why if you look at their revenue, I mean, interest income is just twenty percent of their revenue. Yeah, it's, it's all transactors, right? Just like just running lots of transactions through those cards. But they them getting the whole merchant discount, right? So essentially, they, they, they keep they all of the it. Dis, the discount. Yeah. They keep all of it, right? And, yeah. and that's like 55% of their revenue, right? And if we go to the mode, so what is the mode of Amex? I mean, that's essentially member rewards. But why this is a sustainable mode is that because they earn so much on the spend, like no one comes even close to how much they earn on every processed dollar. Yep. They can afford a reward that nobody else can. And this is kind of, you know, when you look at it, it's a pretty basic concept, but no one ever did that, right? So, so we see Visa and MasterCard, the networks, we have the issuers, and then there is Amex, right? Somewhere in between. And, and yeah, so I mean, when, when I kind of figured out how, how kind of the, the business model, I started thinking and then what excites me is the application of it in FinTech. And uh, after thinking a bit, I realized that actually a firm is trying to replicate the model. Right, so you think about what what the firm is doing online, right? I mean, they partner with merchants directly, the same way as Amex. Right? Yep, he's, he's, he's doing more than seventy percent through direct acquiring. Uh, so, I mean, if, even if you look at the logos of the largest uh, merchants, they are the same. 
yep. Walmart, it's Amazon, right? So a firm is going there and they are uh, charging the, the merchant fees, right? So they call them network fees. But then they have the other side, which is the, the lending part, right? Where, where they earn off the interest from, from the consumers. So they're not entirely there, right? They're not earning as much as Amex from the spenders, but the model is essentially the same, right? And I think this is, this is like super, super exciting. Yeah, I love it. I mean, I it's funny when you were describing sort of the three pillars of what Amex does, because as you were describing it, I was like, everyone in fintech gets really excited about, I'll use a different example, but like Square, bringing the Square ecosystem and the Cash App ecosystem together. I'm like, oh, imagine if like, eventually when these two ecosystems are fully integrated, you'll have Cash App users that are working with Square merchants, and a lot of the transactions will be on us transactions, and it'll be great. And it's like, okay, imagine that. But imagine a much bigger network where the cards only work within that network. And oh, by the way, instead of it being Cash App that serves lower income consumers and younger consumers, imagine like the absolute tippity top of the consumer pyramid of spenders that you would really want to get who are all obsessed with that product. And like that's what Amex has already built. And so I love that you compare it to like what a firm is doing or what others in the space are doing, because I think that you know, there is this like vision of, oh my gosh, if we could just have more like on us transactions and sort of have our own little closed loop ecosystem, you know, like some people speculate about that with Apple, right? Like Apple got a really great deal from Visa and MasterCard for Apple Pay, supposedly on the promise that they wouldn't develop their own closed loop payments ecosystem. And I think American Express is like the sort of cautionary tale to the Visa and MasterCards of the world of like, this is what happens when you let something like this get to scale. So no, I I completely agree. And the only other thing I'll note on Amex, Jared, before I throw it over to you is, I don't know, you guys remember when they lost Costco, right? Which is like its own whole thing. I was covering the credit card space as an analyst at the time. And so that was like really big news. And Costco made up a very large portion of Amex's overall customer base. And People were like shocked and disappointed. And there was a lot of speculation about like, oh my God, like what will they do? And American Express was kind of like, you know, people love us and we have this brand and the brand sort of naturally refills itself because every new generation that comes along, it's like, oh, you know, millennials hate credit cards. They'll never use credit cards. And then millennials grow up and they love credit cards. We love credit cards, I should say. And American Express is like, the best experience and the best rewards. And now the same thing is happening with Gen Z. But I just wrote a report the other day that Gen Z is starting to use credit cards. And every time this happens, there's all these like fintech competitors that come in going, well, we're going to be the American Express for like Gen Z and we're going to build this. And like really based on our experience to date, and I think it goes to your point about the business model and how much they reinvest into the cardholder experience. The American Express for Gen Z is American Express, just like it was for millennials, just like it was for Gen X. Like they've been doing this for, I don't know, how old are they? Like 150 years old? Like they've been doing this for a long time and their model, it works, right? You're right. I mean, they already are there, right? So, I mean, like 32% of, of spend uh, comes from millennials and Gen Z. 60% of new accounts are millennials and Gen Z. This is what I'm saying. Like they're not they're not worried about this. Or even I remember um when Buy Now Pay Later was really popping off and there was this sort of famous quote that went around fintech circles about American Express kind of being dismissive of Buy Now Pay Later and basically saying, like, we've added in this pay it planet feature, which is integrated into the card. But beyond that, like I think the CEO's quote was, that's not the game we're playing, basically. 
And I remember being a smart-ass analyst who doesn't know anything about anything, making fun of Amex at the time. And there were a bunch of other folks who were with me on that. Fast forward, and it turns out that American Express's strategy on buy now, pay later was exactly right. They're not playing the same game. And so they didn't go into the trap of trying to like disintermediate their own incredibly successful product. And by the way, the little pay at planet feature that they added on has actually been getting a lot of use, uh, according to American Express. And I think that's actually, um, and Jeff, correct me if I'm wrong here, but I think that's been driving a lot of the loan growth in their product. And, and it's a really smart sort of add-on without over-rotating on the thread of buy now, pay later. Exactly. I mean, do not disclose, right? But, but essentially, they've mentioned multiple times on earnings calls and at different conferences that the loan growth comes from what they call lending facility or pay-over-time lending facility attached yep. to charge cards. Yep. So it's not the revolving balances. It's, it's pretty much a buy now, pay later instrument. Right, which works well for their customer base. Jared, what do you think? Yeah, a few things. I, I love the pay over time and pay it later features from the capabilities from Amex and Chase that they've added. I've long thought it was an inevitability that all the general purpose credit cards would add these financing features. We, I helped start a company called BlissPay, and that was largely the thesis that upstream presentment from in the shopping journey, which is the value that you know a firm or bill me later before it or BlissPay was was really trying to help capture for merchants and share with them. I think every technology area has an open and a closed model. So, and it's interesting that Amex versus Visa, Android, iOS, OpenAI, and, and Meta, there's room for two winners or more because these pools of profits are ginormous <laughs> and both models work. You know, neither one is better than the other, you know, apparently on a hundred year basis, <laughs> <laughs> which is, it can make it confusing for startups, but it's also, you know, reality. To your point about lots of different models being able to kind of coexist, the other thing that's interesting to me about American Express is that this whole like three-party model versus four-party model, which is essentially the distinction between American Express issuing cards, being the network and being the acquirer, or a four-party model like what Visa and MasterCard do, where the issuer is a separate party, right? And it's interesting because at various times over the years, American Express has dabbled in more of a four-party model or allowing others to issue American Express cards. And there are some out there today where other issuers can issue American Express cards. And I think in particular, actually, American Express has been trying to court fintech companies as third-party issuers on the American Express network, which I think is kind of an interesting strategy. And it, it kind of speaks to this larger balance, I think, that they have to strike, which is, and it's the same for anyone who wants to, you know, operate essentially a closed payment network. How do you make sure that you are keeping your appeal and your sort of general relevance in the space broad enough so that the like really intense value that's accruing to your customers continues to make sense, right? So like, how do you kind of pull your network to be broader while then also reinvesting everything to make the value proposition deeper? And, you know, I do see American Express sort of nibbling around the edges a little bit there in terms of, hey, maybe if we have some of these third party issuers, particularly if they're fintech companies, maybe that'll just sort of tap the American Express brand into sort of new places where we might not be penetrating today. You know, I think that over time, I've, I've actually done some consulting projects with Amex in the past, and they're very focused on merchant acceptance as well. And so they do Small Business Saturday, and they have a very sort of active part of their business, which is about expanding 
merchant acceptance as much as humanly possible. Because again, like the great sort of threat to American Express has always been, you know, you pull out your American Express card and they go, we don't accept that there. And so like, I find their business model to be really fascinating in that you have to sort of delicately balance like, no, no, merchants, it's great. Like you really want to be, you know, accepting American Express, even though our fees are pretty high, even relative to the other networks. And then at the same time, taking those merchants that accept Amex and taking all of the value you get from that and pouring it back into rewards for your cardholders so that those cardholders are the most attractive possible spenders who then attract more merchants to want to accept you. So there's this really sort of delicate push and pull to building the business. And you know, I said we were going to talk about boring companies. Like the reason we're talking about some of these like older, more established companies is it takes a while, like almost culturally, to figure out, I think, how to nail that balance and that sort of like very delicate dance that you have to go through. I mean, I was looking at the chart recently. So Amex got to 99% acceptance in the US only in 2019. Yeah, right. Right. And and there was actually a huge jump, right? So from just 80% in 2014. Right? So, so yep. almost 20% up in what, like five years. And this is how I discovered the Boston Tea Party an incident from 1991, right? And, yeah. and learned that actually there were times, you know, when Amex demanded to be exclusive, right? And something probably right. unimaginable nowadays, right? So it took them a while, right, to get to pretty much 100% coverage uh, in the U.S. And a lot of their efforts are going international, right? So outside of the U.S., the yes. coverage is, is quite weak, right? And then what, like... 17 cities outside of the U.S. that have like 75% coverage, right? And, and like it, they did not disclose all the cities, but some were not cities. Like French Riviera was counted as a city. It's like a, a whole mm. region. <laughs> so, uh, and, and a good point, right, that they try to bring the other uh, issues. But, you know, again, looking at the chart, right, so I'm following what they call processed volumes. Essentially, mm-hmm. it's, it's the volumes that, that come from from other issues, where they act purely as, as as a network, just like thirteen percent. So it's small. It's yeah. small, right? So it's either that you know they are struggling, or if you kind of being an optimist, and it's a huge potential, right? <laughs> yeah, right, 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 right. Yeah, sort of that one's in the eye of the beholders. And I think the other thing that's interesting about that is they do definitely sort of have a lot of different levers that they pull on for that stuff, right? And so like internationals one, you know, third-party issuers for that four-party model that I discussed is another. I think another one that's been huge to them over the years, and I talked about Costco, is the co-branded cards, right? And obviously, they have some really big ones, which have, I think, contributed greatly to the strength of their network and getting the right type of cardholders. I mean, Delta's primarily a credit card company, more so than an airline in, in reality. Talk about interesting business models. And so, you know, I think that that's another one where it's a delicate dance, right? Because when they lost Costco, and some of the reporting from back then is amazing if you go back and read it, but like, the Costco thing kind of fell apart when Costco wanted to treat them the same way that they treat like their ketchup vendor. And the old CEO at American Express got all offended because he was wearing his three-piece suit. And he's like, we're not a ketchup vendor. And he like walked out. And so, you know, there is like a very delicate balance to finding the right partners, nurturing those partnerships, adding new ones. I've seen some speculation that like, oh, maybe they'll take a crack at like the Apple card post Goldman Sachs. And 
maybe, but like Apple shouldn't expect the same kind of sweetheart deal and just like bending over backwards to accommodate them that Goldman Sachs did. So, you know, as American Express kind of worms its way into these new generations, how they manage some of those co-brand partnerships will be be pretty fascinating to me. Do you mind if I give you uh, my company and my business model oh, to end? Please. Okay, so uh, boring and a little maybe less well-known in some circles, uh, although this is a fintech audience, so you guys should know. My company is the Bank Corp, which is a community bank. It's got about $7.9 billion in assets. It was founded in 1999. And in the early days, the Bank Corp was really focused on prepaid. And if you know your fintech history, you will know that the roots of much of the B2C fintech explosion that we all take for granted now, particularly neobanks, got its start building on top of prepaid rails and prepaid program managers. And Bancorp was a big provider in that space. So if you go back to a lot of the very early neobanks in the US, uh, a lot of them were built on Bancorp or Metabank, some of those early providers that were big in the prepaid space. Now, because they were early to that model, they were also early to get in trouble under that model. And so they actually, after really being a foundational provider for sort of that early wave of B2C fintech, got slapped with a consent order by the FDIC in 2014 relating to failures in third-party risk management and AML BSA. And so they basically spent the remainder of the 2010s sort of slowly remediating their way out of that consent order, strengthening their risk management, strengthening their compliance, building new infrastructure, picking up some partners and kind of growing slowly, but not being able to maybe grow kind of as quickly as they wanted to. In 2020, that consent order by the FDIC was lifted. And that's where the story really takes off. Because since then, all the numbers are pointing up. So, you know, Jeff, you mentioned... ROE as a metric for measuring bank profitability and American Express is about 30%. The Bank Corp is actually at 26% in 2023, which is pretty amazing. Again, for like a little community bank, that is up from 15% in 2020. So a massive gain in ROE. Uh, revenue last year was $466 million, up from $279 million in 2020. Uh, efficiency ratio is actually going down, which is a good thing. So it's down to 41% from 59% in 2020. And looking at their projections, and I, I don't think they're being sort of overly optimistic. They think that by 2030, they can get to a billion dollars in revenue and a 40% ROE, which is really like truly unheard of in financial services. You know, just for another point of reference, JP Morgan Chase averages out about 15% ROE. And so really, really, really good. And the question is, how the hell are they doing this? And so what's really interesting is I think that the Bank Corp is kind of like the platonic ideal of what someone envisions when they're like, my community bank is going to get into banking as a service. And so what they do is they use fintech uh, partnerships and they work with PayPal, they work with Chime, they work with a number of sort of large sort of deposit focused neobanks and other fintech companies. That's how they generate both fee income for processing payments, but also how they collect low cost insured stable deposits. So in 2023, at the end of the year, they reported about $6.4 billion in deposits up from $4 billion in 2019. So they've had this massive increase in deposits, again, at roughly the same time that everyone is trying to fight for deposits. And like deposit growth is not something you can take for granted. And 91% of that $6.4 billion are insured deposits, meaning that they're those 
low dollar amount. Think about like a Chime user just sort of keeping their paycheck there. That's the type of low cost deposit that they have. And the beautiful thing about what Bancorp has sort of wrapped around that fintech business is a lending business that is specifically designed to take advantage of that deposit franchise they have. So what do they do with those deposits? They lend them out on all these really weird kind of price-sensitive but low-risk niches, right? So because they have such an advantage in gathering deposits, they basically go into these really hyper-specific markets like bridge lending and real estate, institutional lending to wealth management companies, small business lending, commercial fleet leasing. Like They help like police departments in localities lease out new fleets of cars for police cars, right? Just like really weird kind of niche areas. And they'll go in and they'll compete on price to win the business because their costs of deposit gathering are very low. And then they will really target areas that they understand well and that are low risk from a default perspective. And so they have managed to sort of cultivate all of these small little lending franchises that are like hyper-specific. But in the aggregate, they give them a very diversified base of places to lend into. The loans are relatively quick turn, so there's not a lot of duration risk, there's not a lot of interest rate risk, and as I said, there's not a lot of delinquency or default risk. And so they've built this sort of optimized machine for turning banking as a service into really profitable revenue. And what's fascinating is, compared to all of their other peers in the market at that sort of $7, $8 billion range, they have no intention of ever growing beyond $10 billion, right? Because being Durban exempt helps them win fintech clients. Staying under $10 billion keeps their compliance requirements a little bit lower. And they're essentially just trying to figure out a way to tread water there forever while increasingly driving more throughput through this model. So to me, when I see like other companies, and obviously, you know, Jared, you said like, you know, pick a vertical or an area in financial services that sort of means something to the larger space and then like what's a good model there. I think Bancorp is kind of the model for banking as a service and what people want to get to. Thoughts? First thought that comes to mind is, well, good job. I find that looking and trying to understand these banks, it's like very, very hard and complex between it's super hard acquisitions are so acquisitive and i just how to attribute that revenue to the company revenue what is is like pretty challenging especially if you look up you know company like like bankorp in particular really any bank you just see acquisition after acquisition so i guess my main question here going into it for most banks would be even amex would be how do these companies see their business models need to evolve over the next 10 years? Or do they not because they're just so dominant? But in this case, it actually sounds like it's evolved a lot over the previous 10 years. And so now it's really in execution mode. Yeah. So I guess I'm curious if you know they, they've got their consent orders. They were early to best. They've dealt with those issues. They've come out of it on the other side. What do you think the learnings are that others could take away who are you know in somewhat troubled positions related to that part of their business. Yeah, yeah. I've been getting myself in a lot of trouble for writing so much about Bass recently because everyone is sort of in trouble right now. Yeah, I mean, I think that the natural progression of companies in this space is you sort of, I'm not saying everyone has to get a consent order, but it kind of feels like everyone does get a consent order and there's a lot of learnings that come from that. I mean, the big thing, and, and the Bancorp talks about this, they talked about this in their latest earnings call, is we want to overinvest in the infrastructure necessary to do BAS at scale, right? And so most community banks tend to think about banking as a service as like this free money machine that you just sort of like pull the lever and money comes out. We don't have to do anything. 
And they don't think of it as an area that they need to invest in. And I think the Bank Corp, uh, after going through the problems that they went through and having had that experience early, all the infrastructure they've been building out, technology, people, process, everything, is designed to basically do banking as a service at a scale that most other companies their size can't do. And you're starting to see some other, I call them in a piece recently, like Bass Warp Cores, like more modern banks that have a tech stack sort of attached to them. You're starting to see other companies trying to sort of replicate what the Bank Corp has done, but they have such a lead over everyone else that like, again, if I'm a PayPal or Chime or any of these other large programs, the Bank Corp is just such an obvious low risk partner to work with relative to the other ones that they sort of are, to your point, kind of sitting in the catbird seat. So I do see the rest of the market catching up a little bit. And I guess over time, that would be a risk is just, you know, when these guys got into Bass, there really wasn't much competition at all. And there's definitely going to be more, there's more now and there will be more in the future. But I still do feel like they have a bit of a, a lead there. Jeff, what are your thoughts on it? You know, I'm just, just looking at that few charts, right? How, how the shares performed, trading at 2.9 books. So not Timex, but better than JP Morgan. You can see this increasing ROI clearly in, in, in the chart. I think the thing that keeps occupying me, okay, so what happens when the rates go down? Right? They're not specifically about down, right? But some of the neobanks get deposits, just park them with treasuries, get attractive yield and share parts of it with their customers. And kind of everybody's happy. But what happens when this disappears, right? And the rates go down. Maybe they don't go down zero, but I mean, they become less attractive. And that triggers chain effect. Essentially, you cannot offer, you know, rate to your fintech clients. They cannot offer great rate to their clients. So they get less deposits, you get less deposits, right? And and essentially, the, the, this whole model starts falling apart, right? So I don't know the financials of Bancorp, right? So you know, whether they make most of their money from the safeguarded accounts or from the fees, but uh, I would say that the interest income is challenging. And maybe this is kind of first thoughts is this is why they are pushing or discovering this lending niches. Yeah, to your point, like they are a very net interest margin focused business, right? I mean, I think they, they have some fee revenue that they generate for processing payments and doing other things with their fintech clients. But the vast majority of it is just sort of classic net interest margin. And again, you know, I mean, the thing that's cool about great business models is not like net net interest margin is not you know new or innovative in any way. Every bank does it. It's more the machine they've wrapped around it to do it efficiently. But I I do think your point's a good one, Jeff. About this was probably like the ideal time for them to come out of their consent order and for their like you know their engine to sort of be like humming along because rates went up but they didn't have to pay super high rates for deposits because they had these fintech programs. So they were really able to see, I'm, I'm imagining very good NIM expansion over the last you know three, four years. And yeah, I think as rates sort of peter out and then start to go down, I don't think their business will be in trouble necessarily, but I think the rate of revenue growth that they've been seeing might be expected to slow down a bit, which would make sense. Yeah, or, or they use this period of higher rates to actually discover those lending niches, right? And keep earning yeah. uh, kind of uh, premium yeah, uh, yeah. Yeah. interest, right? Yeah, finding places where like, yeah, they can continue to sort of keep that NIM sort of at the level that they're expecting. I also think that the fintech partners that they're working with, I think fintech historically has not been big on passing along rates 
to customers, right? It's particularly for those lower income segments like a Chime user. But I, I think I just saw today maybe that Cash App has started offering like high yield savings like at 4.5%. So the more interest you want to pass on on that side of it, I think that'll also potentially increase costs. So yeah, there are some potential challenges there, but an interesting one to watch. I've taken up too much of your guys' time. You've been super generous. Jeff needs to go to bed in particular since he's a few <laughs> hours ahead of us. Um, Thank you, Jared and Jeff, so much for joining me for maybe what can become a uh, annual tradition. Oh, what a gorgeous business model. So thank you both. And uh, we'll see you again soon. Thanks, Alex. Thanks, Jared. See you guys. Bye. Thank you. Take care. Thank you for listening to this episode of FinTech Takes. Stay up to date with emerging companies and the latest FinTech trends by subscribing wherever you get your podcasts. And if you love FinTech Takes, please tell a friend.